Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, if you haven't been around Cherry Hills for a while, uh, then you've missed the opportunity to hear one of my favorite stories. Here we go. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage singing, the next he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. His problem began when his owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum hose. By the way, after the last service, the lady came up and said, this actually happened in my life. She stuck the nozzle in to suck up the seeds and feathers in the bottom of the cage. Then the phone rang. Instinctively, she turned to pick it up. She had barely said hello when (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. She gasped, let the phone drop, and snapped off the vacuum. With her heart in her mouth, she unzipped the bag. There was Chippy, alive but stunned, (laughs) covered with heavy black dust. She grabbed him and rushed him to the bathtub, turned on the faucet full blast, and held Chippy under a torrent of ice-cold water, power washing him clean. Next, she did what any compassionate pet owner would do. She snatched up the hairdryer and blasted the wet, shivering little bird with hot air. And this is my favorite line. Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. Chippy's not the only one that doesn't sing much anymore. As a pastor, and just as a regular human being, I'm sure you see it too. There are people this week that are trying to recover, that are dazed and confused because they lost a loved one this past year. And they're trying to imagine life without that person. There's others who have gone through a betrayal or a relationship that's gone south and they're trying to make sense of it, but it is incredibly overwhelming. It's hard to sing when that happens to the human heart. There's other people that are just so tired of dealing with the same addiction, either in their own lives or a loved one's life, that they're trying to say, hey, you know, it's hard to sing. Some people are looking at what's happening in our nation and world and saying, you know, I don't sing much anymore. And I want to tell you that there is some good news that we can find in this passage we're going to look at today. If you're following along in the notes, here's a couple things I want you to see. First, if it's difficult for you to believe the Easter event, take heart. If it's difficult for you to believe that Jesus actually rose again, take heart. You know, uh, some of the people that deny that Jesus actually did physically rise from the dead, part of their argument is that his disciples were expecting it, so they made this up. And what I want you to see is that that actually wasn't true. (laughs) They were taken off guard. They felt a lot like Chippy that first Easter morning. And so if you're following along, here's what I want you to see is that none of Jesus' followers get why he must rise from the dead. It had passed them by. They might, you know, they just missed it. So it wasn't like they were going, okay, now how do we stage this so we can make it come true? None of his followers, doesn't this encourage you? 
None of his followers get why he must rise from the dead. And here's what I saw this week as I studied this passage we're going to look at in just a moment. I saw that no matter where you are, if you're like me, if you're like these first disciples, a lot of stuff about Jesus just passes you by. And yet we're going to see the way he brings people along and takes them wherever their starting point is. He can bring us along and he can allow us to understand what we don't at first. He can actually open our eyes. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 24. I know that some of you may not have brought a Bible. Every Sunday we say this, that there are some black ones in the seat rack hopefully near you. I think they say NIV on the end. And if you want to use one of those black Bibles, we encourage every person to be a first-hander with the Bible. Uh, Don't just trust what other people tell you about the Bible. Read it for yourself and at least give it a fair hearing. But Luke 24 is found on page 737 of the Black Bible. It's in the bottom right corner where it starts there. And if you're getting used to your Bible, Luke is about three-fourths of the way through. And we're going to look at chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. This message is entitled Easter Morning. The reason I titled it that way is because Luke, which we've been studying this last year and a half, if you haven't been with us, Luke's Gospel... In Luke here, he divides Easter, the different accounts of Easter, into that first Easter morning, verses 1 through 12, Easter afternoon, verses 13 through 35, and then Easter evening, verses 36 through 49. And so as you look at these, we're just going to look at Easter morning, and I want you to see again that the state of these people that were coming alive to what really had happened, the resurrection, they did not start expecting it or on track. They were dazed and confused. And I find great comfort in that, that God knew that and was able to bring them along. That's what he wants to do with us this morning as well. And so um, before uh, we look at this passage, would you pray with me? Now, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather with these people, both our regular uh, church family friends and our guests. We pray that every person, no matter where they are with you, would know that you're speaking to them on their own terms, on their own turf. And so I thank you that your word and your Holy Spirit can accomplish that. Please teach us now for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. Okay, so before we look at verse 1, which I've listed there in that first gray box, and I'm going to invite you to read in just a minute, look back with me at the two verses before that at the end of chapter 23. What I want you to see is that when Jesus gets buried on that Friday night, notice what happens. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfume perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath, Saturday, in obedience to the commandment. Now, would you read verse one with me out loud, full voice, let's hear the word of God. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, notice if you're following along in the notes, it's women, by the way, I don't know if you know, uh, woman is spelled A-N, women is spelled E-N. I, I had to learn that a few years ago. It kind of helped me. But it's women who first learn of Jesus being raised. It's women. Let me stop for a second and just tell you, again, just in all fairness, some of the arguments that this didn't actually happen is that um, people, when they, when they think about that, Some of the people that defend that this actually happened said, well, take the women, for example. 
See, in the early, the first century, no credible person, unless it actually really happened, would say that the women discovered the resurrection first. Because in those days, again, this, I'm not saying this right or wrong, I'm saying is those days women were not even allowed to give a testimony in the court of law. So therefore, if you're trying to build a case, this is the, the wrong direction to go. But the reason why Luke lists this is because it actually happened. I'll just remind you, if you weren't here in the beginning study, Luke was a doctor. Luke was particular. He was precise. He had come to Christ a little bit later uh, than the first disciples. But look at what he says in his opening verses of Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so again, Luke went back and met with the eyewitnesses who were still alive and was able to record this. And they said it was the women who were first made aware of that. I wanted to just say one more thing about this is that what we often imagine in our minds is that Jesus traveled around with 12 men all the time. And that's true, he did, but it was bigger than that. Many times they would travel in groups larger, both of men and women. And Luke 8, if you go back, actually says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, I bring this up because I want you to know that Jesus had a larger circle than just the 12 disciples that were men. Women and men were followers of Jesus and traveled together. So they would have heard Jesus' teaching. They would have been made aware of some of these things. So notice that. Second thing I want you to notice if you're following along is that very early, they come with spices to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the morning. Very early in the morning. They wanted to get there as soon as they could. And um, uh, I want you to know, again, they weren't singing a happy tune. When it says that they came to anoint his body, you know, I, I, I'm trying to understand this in light of our culture. Uh, a funeral director once explained to me that in the last 100 years, a whole bunch of things have changed in our country dealing with death. Even 50 or 100 years ago, when someone died, I don't know if you know this, but the family was in charge of washing and preparing their body. Oftentimes, there would be wakes in homes where the body would be laid out there in a room. And so people were used to dealing with death more up closely. That's certainly what was going on here. These women had prepared that so that they could honor the body of the one they loved very much. And they had worked on that. They wanted to make sure so that even as Jesus' body was decaying, they could somehow counteract the smell of that and also still honor and grace his body in a way that showed their love for him. And so they're walking there. As you look at the other three Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and John, you'll notice if you add these different details together that while they're on their way, they're trying to figure out who's going to roll away the stone. The stone had been rolled in. It was a very heavy stone that took a number of men 
to roll into a kind of carved out area in front of the door. But on top of that, the Jewish leaders had asked that the Roman uh, soldiers would set a seal over the tomb and guard it. So they came with the spices, but they didn't necessarily know how they were going to figure that out. They just had to get to Jesus or as close as they could to honor him. Okay? So if you're following along, verse 2 and 3 says this, They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. If you're following along in the notes, they find the stone rolled away, but they don't find Jesus' body. They find the stone rolled away. That took care of that problem. But they don't find Jesus' body. Now, again, if you and I were to go out to Oak Ridge Cemetery this afternoon and we were to go to the grave of one of our friends or loved ones, and we were to see all of the dirt lifted up, and like someone had just dug it all up and stuff, would your first conclusion be, oh, I guess they're alive? (laughs) Probably not. Probably what you'd say is, what demented person just attacked my loved one's grave and did something like this? That's how your mind would think first. And so when they see the stone rolled away, that gives them an opportunity to walk in. But when they walk in, they go, where is he? Where is he? Oh, my goodness. And again, they're wondering about this, just as you and I would too. Again, this is not one of those things where they go, oh, that's right. His body's gone because he's alive. They would not be thinking like that. Neither would you and I. Notice if you read verses 4, 5, and 6, it says, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. Excuse me, verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. If you're following along in the notes, two men in clothes as bright as lightning proclaim, He has risen. Let Let me just stop for a second and tell you that one of the things I do several times a year is that I go back out to western Iowa where I grew up as a boy and where I was a pastor for a time, and I walk uh, all over this small town there, and one of the places I spend a lot of my time is in the cemetery. Some people go, like, Jeff, what's your problem? Well, the reason I walk in that cemetery is because many, many times I walked up the hill with people to do their funerals, and I remember the faithfulness of God to meet me every time I had to be part of that difficult work. And it gives me incredible courage just to walk by and remember how God helped me there. He helped me there. And again, it's also a place uh, to be quiet. And so I will tell you this, though. I don't walk there at night. And that's because if I was walking there at night and all of a sudden someone came up and tapped me on the shoulder or said, boo, I would jump out of my shoes. There's just something about being in the place where people have been buried, where all of a sudden, so imagine this now. These two men with clothes that are way better than any detergent can ever wash them, all of a sudden are there right next to them. And they go, like, first of all, where did you come from? And second of all, what are you doing here? And notice they're so scared, they're bowed to the ground. They bow to the ground. Now, some people go, how come it says two men? And in some of the other gospel accounts, it says angels. Well, verse 23 in chapter 24, if you look at it, says that it was two angels. In other words, it's a way of saying angels can certainly present themselves in human form if they want to or appear as a human being. But that's what's going on here is that the Lord is helping them along by showing them what they don't understand. It's a tremendously gracious thing of him to do. And so notice uh, again, as I read verse uh, six as well, They say to him, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. 
Okay, now I actually have listed some of the same things I just read in the second gray box. Would you read it with me? Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So if you're following along, the two men urged the women to remember how he told them. What they, what they do is they go, okay, we're not just here to scare you. We're here to tell you what, we're here to make sense of what's going on. You came here looking for someone who's dead. Well, this would be the right place if he was dead, but he's not. So you need to look at other places because he's not, he's alive. Second of all, he's risen. And third, remember, he called it. He called this. He predicted it. He told you, you heard it. And they remind him. And in my notes there in that second grade box, I circled the phrase, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Again, they don't get this. They, they say like, what do you mean must be? Why is that even necessary? What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with my life or anybody else's? And the angels are going to help them at least begin to wrestle with that. The son of man must be. And so remember how he told them, can I just stop for a second? And tell you that one of the reasons we gather on Sunday mornings, twofold. One, the reason we don't gather on Saturday mornings, the Sabbath anymore, is because the resurrection changed everything. Believers started meeting on the first day of the week after that to always remember this is when our Lord rose from the dead. But the second reason we meet on Sunday mornings and gather is not so much to be informed as to be reminded of what we forget. Can anybody relate to what I'm saying? There are so many times that I've walked in here, and even if I had been told something before, I either have forgotten it or it never registered. I mean, there's times when somebody may say something to you, and you may nod your head, and yet it doesn't register. If Trish asked me to pick up something at the grocery store and even says it three or four times, I can even drive my car past that grocery store. And when I walk into the kitchen and she said, did you remember that I asked you to get those things at the grocery store? And then I, I'd have the same experience. Then I remembered. <laughs> okay, then I remembered. And that's what happens next. Look at verse 8. Then they remembered his words. If you're following along in the notes there, then they remember Jesus' words. Now, again, this reminds us that one, they were traveling with Jesus, so they would have an opportunity to hear him share this. If you read Matthew and Mark's gospel, you'll see that three times he had repeated that in chapter 16 and 17 of Matthew and other places in Luke. In fact, here's a place in Luke where it shows that he talked to his disciples more than once about this. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, now, by the way, one thing about ancient culture there is that he may have had those 12 aside, but there were almost always people gathered around at meals and other things that would have overheard this. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the son of man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked, treated shamefully and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Notice what next, but they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Do you know it's possible to go to church every week your entire life? It's possible to read the Bible every day and not grasp it. 
Man, do I know that as a pastor's kid. That's my story. It just passed me by. It wasn't because I was even trying at times, but it just, I just missed it. It didn't register. But that day, something happened. They remembered his words. I thought about this graphic. Have you ever seen something like this before? The light went on. All of a sudden they went, that's right. He did tell us this. He did call it. It just, it never registered. I never got it. Huh, this is huge. What does this mean? What's the ramifications of this? Then they remembered his words. Notice if you're following along though, that the women go and tell these things to the 11 and all the others. That the women go and tell these things to the 11 and all the others. That's what it says, verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 disciples and all, to all the others. Shows us that there was a larger group that followed Jesus. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now this is eyewitness testimony right there. Saying, hey, if you're wondering if who I'm talking about, here are some of the names of the women. And there's even more than these. So I appreciate that. But notice when they go and tell, one of the things I love is that Matthew 28, 8, I love this phrase. I was reading this this morning. It says, so the women hurried away from the tomb. Now look at this phrase with me. Afraid, yet filled with joy. And ran to tell his disciples, afraid, yet filled with joy. They're scared out of their minds. They're going, we just got the spook of our lives with these guys showing up, with the grave being empty. I mean, like our minds are reeling and we are actually afraid because we don't even know what all this means. And yet they were filled with joy. If this is possible, if he is alive, this changes everything, everything for us. We can sing again. We can sing again if he's alive. Now notice when they go, They don't believe the women. It seems like nonsense if you're following along. The men and all the others don't believe the women. It all seems like nonsense to them. Now, I need to walk very carefully on this subject of men and women right here, believing each other. As a pastor, this is delicate territory. But what I want you to notice is is that a lot of people would say, well, the reason they don't believe their testimony is because it was women that told them. Friends, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that they already knew each other. They were friends. I believe that they actually said, look, I want, I want to believe what you're saying. But first of all, it's categorically never happened before. And second of all, like, I, I, I'm sorry. I just can't believe it. I mean, you heard it. I wasn't there. I can't believe it. One thing I will tell you, though, is that over and over again, God has often used women to help men come to know Jesus. Maybe that's your testimony. I will tell you this, that there's accounts of that. Timothy, one of Paul's followers, would be led to the Lord by his grandmother and his mother. There's other stories I could tell you, but here's one of the things my dad told me when I first got married that's pretty good advice. He said, Jeff, always listen to your wife because God will usually talk to her first before he talks to you. And what he was trying to say to me is that oftentimes women have a spiritual sensitivity that men in our pride and our machoism miss unless we're humble enough to listen and be teachable. And Jesus starts out by having them give the testimony. And again, people don't believe him right away, but one person at least has to do something about it, and that's Peter. Let me read verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. 
you're following along, Peter runs to the tomb, sees the strips of linen. Again, that's a very important eyewitness comment right there. And he wonders about it as he leaves the tomb. He runs to the tomb, sees the strips of linen, wonders as he leaves about it. Again, people that have studied this say what's interesting about that language is that when Peter walked in, it wasn't like a messy college dorm room. What was interesting is, is that the strips were in their same place, undisturbed. And it was like Jesus was vaporized out of the wrappings. So Peter's going, whoo, whoo, whoo. And now it's hitting him. The stone wasn't rolled away so he could get out. The stone was rolled away so that you and I could go in. And we could see that he had done exactly what he said he would do. Because only he could pull that off. Wow. So let me ask you this. Why did Jesus say he must be killed? must be crucified, and he must be raised again. Why did he say that? Why? Well, friends, let me just say this. First of all, if he wasn't crucified and he wasn't raised again, then he's a liar. He's a phony. Second of all, he said it because Scripture had to be fulfilled because Scripture had prophesied that this is what the Son of God would pull off when he came. And third, if he hadn't done this, we would still be in our sins. We would still be in a broken relationship with God without hope and without God in the world. But instead, what I want to tell you is the Apostle Paul, who had formerly been known as Saul, a great persecutor of the church. If you want more evidence of people that were eventually changed by the resurrection, take the greatest enemy of the church. His name was Saul. He was so sickened by these people walking around saying that Jesus had been raised from the dead that he did everything in his power to persecute those people and try and stamp out this lie. Instead, one day on a, on a road to Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus and it sets his life on a totally different course where for the rest of his life, he would tell everybody about the resurrection of Jesus. Here's one example in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, this is important. It had to happen. It's big. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. He goes on and says this later in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. So he goes on and says, this is how big the resurrection is. He had to be crucified. He had to be raised again in order to do what? Open up the door for us to have a right relationship with God. Have you ever seen the definition of the gospel by Tim Keller? I've shared it before, but here it is again. The gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Many of us have found this to be true. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The Bible says is that this wasn't just something where Jesus died and rose again to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Spiritually, it's an amazing miracle. And so I want to talk to you as we close about how to respond to Jesus' resurrection. Because if, if it is of first importance, if it is something that had to be done in order to touch our lives and your life and mine, then here I just want to ask you what your starting point is this morning. First, if you're looking at the notes there, where am I at with Jesus and his words? Where am I at with Jesus and his words? And particularly, here's what I mean about his words. His words where he said, I had to be crucified. I had to be raised again for you. It had to happen. It's a must. Where are you at with that? Do you believe that? Does that? So here's just several places where you can maybe see where you are. First of all, are you unfamiliar with his words? Maybe this is brand new for you. Go, Jeff, this is like brand new. That's okay. Glad you're here. At least you know where you're starting. And what I want to say is we want to be one of those church families in our city who you can learn. If you come, we'll do our best to try and learn with you. We're learning too. But as we become more and more familiar with his words, then he can help us understand. Second, unmoved. Maybe you're here today and you are like Chippy, man, filled with grief. Or maybe you're unmoved because you're just numb. Maybe you're unmoved because you honestly don't care. Maybe you're unmoved because it's never made sense to you that this is even anything to do with your life. But at least you know where you're at. Would unmoved describe you this morning? Then you have some options, but at least you know where you're at. Maybe you're here and you're skeptical. Maybe you're saying, look, I'm just like those guys. Even though somebody else told me that Jesus is alive, that's not good enough for me. I'm still skeptical. I have questions. Friends, that may be one of the coolest things ever. That may mean you're alive spiritually. That may mean you're waking up to some things that maybe you never cared about before. It's okay to be skeptical. Ask your questions. Maybe you want to investigate. Maybe you're at the place where you're saying, you know what, I'm starting to investigate. It bothers me staying skeptical. It bothers me staying unmoved or unfamiliar. Let me make two suggestions. Thursday, Trish and I went to see the movie The Case for Christ. It's at Parkway Point, Parkway 8. And if you want to see it, I'd highly recommend it to you. I'm not sure if it would be helpful to you. It was very helpful to me. I happened to meet Lee Strobel years ago, but he, is, he was a, before he became a Christian, he was a hardcore atheist. And I'm not saying that to be dramatic. He said that. You see, friends, he worked at the Chicago Tribune, and he spent every day at the Cook County Jail seeing people try and pull one over on him and lie to him. So he was all about investigating the facts. In the movie, it actually has in the, in the newsroom there, it says, if your mother says it's true, check it out. Okay? The idea was, is always investigate things. Don't just believe anybody's word for it. So what it shows is, is that his life was really messed up. He and his wife were atheists. His life got messed up one day when his wife came home and said, I've trusted Jesus Christ. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. And he got on a path to try and disprove Christianity and realized that it all hung on the resurrection of Jesus. If that wasn't true, everything else in Christianity is a house of cards. 
And so, again, this book, if you've never read it, the movie's based on it, The Case for Christ. I've read this book. I've appreciated it. The movie, it may be just something helpful to you as you investigate. Another thing we'd like to offer you is that if you go to the Welcome Center after this service, we have a sheet of paper. We want to give you a gift. It's called Who Is This Man by John Ortberg on ebook. It's a digital thing you can load on your Kindle or on your tablet. But again, the directions would be there. All we ask is that you take the time to stop by the Welcome Center and request that copy, and uh, we'll be glad to give that to you as a gift if you're investigating. But the last thing I want you to see here, if you're following along, is that if Jesus rose, then he is Lord, and he offers grace. If, if Jesus did rise again, then that means that there is no one else that's ever walked this earth that can match him. That means if he called it, he is who he says he is. And he called himself God. He called himself the Lord. And that means that if he's the Lord, that means that you and I are ultimately going to stand before him one day. And our responsibility is to respond. And how you and I respond makes all the difference in the world. But hear me. He's not a Lord who is domineering. He's a Lord who offers grace. One of the reasons he had to die in our place is because if he didn't, God could not offer us grace. And so have you seen the definition of grace? Here it is, God's riches at Christ's expense. He wants you and I not to have things pass us by, but to be able to know the riches, the restoration, the reconciliation that he offers us who are in a relationship that's not right with God. And that's all of us, the Bible says, unless we receive grace. And so we thought one more thing we could do is just show you a testimony of a couple in our church who would tell you that for years it just passed them by. But then they began to understand who Jesus was and they began to see their life change and now their daily motivation is different. Watch this, Chris and Sally Mender. I'm Chris and this is my wife Sally. I'm an orthopedic surgeon here in Springfield. I've been married to Sally for about 12 years now. We have two great kids, uh, William's 11 and Ashley's 9. Where I was before I met Christ, uh, I was working hard. I was trying to do all the right things to make my way to heaven and do all the things that I knew I should do. Where I was before was I was just doing life on my own, kind of my own way, Sally's way. Um, I believed in God, but he was very distant. My family um, was always very religious. Um, from the earliest ages when I can remember, I always believed in God and Jesus and going to church on Sundays and just following the commandments as best as you can, I think was what I felt was enough. Just grew up mostly trying to do life for God, trying to be a good person, always trying to do good things. About five, four or five years ago, that's kind of when it started changing for me and for both of us as well. Um, I think there were a few messages during that time that kind of changed a lot of my thinking and challenged the way that I was thinking about Jesus and who he is. The message of the liar, lunatic, and Lord, I think, impacted me a lot simply because I had to make a choice and it had to, there is no gray in there. You have to find that final answer and what do you truly believe. If you look at Jesus, he says he's the son of God. You have to choose. Is he truly the son of God? 
was he a lunatic and thought he was the son of God but really wasn't? Or is he just was he just lying and he knew he wasn't the son of God but wanted everybody to believe it? And somewhere you have to make that choice. But in talking about it, it was like, you know, there really only, there's no gray. It's black or white. What do you do with Jesus? The message that really made a big difference for both of us was the idea of grace. I had never really understood before that message. Grace was just something that we get, and it's not a big deal. But the true meaning of grace, of that I can't get there on my own, there's nothing in my own will. It's just by faith and by grace alone can he do it. That concept had somehow missed me for so many years and always trying to do more and more to get there. And I think that hit us both at the same time that no matter how hard we try, we can't get there on our own. Receiving that grace that I've learned about has changed me to where I am now where I know he's always there, he's my Lord, he's my shepherd, he's my helper, he's definitely my counselor. When I don't have patience, he's my patience. <laughs> he's that love that never fails me and I love that encouragement, I need that. As I came to know Christ and know him more and more, I found that it's not by my works, but by his that I can get there. There's nothing I can do to earn my way to getting to heaven. It's not about what I do. It's that comfort of not that everything's perfect in life. There's still challenges. There's still things I struggle with every day. But knowing that it's okay and that it's not what I have done, but him that will ultimately be the ultimate prize. And that's uh, just a perfect example of two people telling other people what Christ has done. And there's something powerful about a testimony where someone just as genuine. I know Chris and Sally uh, would feel very awkward if you put them on a pedestal. They're still learning. They'd still say there's things that God still wants to show them that they forget or be reminded, but they're on their way. And they, their whole life is motivated differently out of grace. So do you mind just bowing your head for just a moment and giving God an opportunity to show you maybe this morning where you are with him, what you've done with Jesus Christ or what he wants you to do. Would you just give him a moment to listen to him?